Hey, if you've got your Bible, I'd like you to go to the Gospel of John, chapter 17. I've got a long passage. It's a sentence. Um, It's verse 13. John, chapter 17, verse 13. What is often called the high priestly prayer of Jesus. When you come to verse 13, you've literally now arrived at the middle of the chapter. We're right in the middle And actually, you could say this is the hinge of the chapter or the hinge of the prayer. It'll make sense in a little bit. But Jesus prays with his 11 disciples as his audience, and he says, but now I am coming to you. And so he's praying that, talking about what's going to happen. He is going to go back to the Father, come back into the intimacy of the Trinity when he is about, he's only hours away from hanging on Calvary's tree to bear our sin. And he says to God, his father, and these things I speak in the world, and here's his request, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. J.C. Ryle exclaims this when he talks about this idea of what it means to have Jesus pray for us. Here's what he says. The special intercession of the Lord Jesus is one grand secret of the believer's safety. It's the, the secret that we have that nobody else has that Jesus Christ intercedes on our behalf. And then he goes on, he goes, he, meaning you and I as Christians, sons and daughters, we are daily watched and thought for and provided for with unfailing care by one, Jesus Christ, whose eye will never slumber and he who never sleeps. He goes on to say, we, the people of God, never perish. Why? Because Jesus never ceases to pray for us, and his prayer must, not will, but must prevail. So what is the result of that? They, us, we stand and persevere to the end, not because of our strength or our goodness, but because Jesus intercedes for us. Amen? (laughs) So here we are, last Sunday of July. In John 17, 13, for those of you that are a part of Calvary as my family, for those of you that are visiting, I will confess, today is my 99th sermon from the Gospel of John. (laughs) Now, if you think, Jumpin' Steve, man, you are one long-winded dude, just so you know, and even though I preach against it, I'm going to do some comparative righteousness, all right? One of the Puritans, Anthony Burgess, are you ready for this? Preached 76 sermons just on the first 13 verses of John 17. 76 verses. He preached four sermons on this verse. I'm not going to do that. But here we are as a people, as a church, back to the gospel of John. For those of you who don't know, John, the gospel writer, is often called the beloved disciple. But believe it or not, it's, it's a bit of a, a journey and a ride to how he got that title because at one point in his life, John longed for position and power besides Jesus. In fact, him and his brother longed for it so much, they even had their mom go and ask just that of Jesus In fact, John was called with his brother James, the sons of thunder. 
Jesus actually calls them that in Mark chapter 3. And it's likely they got this nickname, and it wasn't meant to be a flattering one, because of an instance that took place in Luke chapter 9, when James and John went to Jesus because there was a group of people not living up to their standards, does that not sound familiar? And literally asked Jesus, can we pray fire down and lick up these people that are not living up to our standards? Now, we also know that this apostle John is also the one who was left at the foot of the cross when Jesus is hanging on that tree and he looks down on his mother and he commits the care of his mom to this beloved disciple. And we also know if you read John's letters, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, that this fiery disciple was actually so transformed by Jesus that at one point in his life, his passion for truth is equaled only by his passion for love, the love of God and the love of others. But I would hope that some of you might even ask yourselves, why? Why did John change so much? If you consider the 21 chapters of the gospel we call John's gospel, John is inspired of God to write this, but it's actually quite amazing how God moves John to record the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. Now, as many of you from my home church know, I've titled this series, Conversations with Christ, and John does exactly that. The Gospel of John is a record of a series of conversations with people, regular people, conversations with his disciples, conversations with a Samaritan woman by a well, a conversation with his mothers and those at a wedding feast. A conversation that he has with crowds and with family. He talks with rulers. And interspersed amongst these seven conversations, John chooses to pick out seven signs or miracles or seven I am statements and pepper them through his gospel. Do you remember them? All the way back in John chapter 6 when Jesus declares to the people, I am the bread of life, in which we learn that only he can supply for us and our greatest need, which is our spiritual one. Two chapters later in John chapter 8, with the backdrop of the Feast of Tabernacles, with the four massive torches lit brightly on the four corners of the temple, Jesus would declare, I am the light of the world. And he became a living illustration to the people. Later on in John chapter 10, he told a crowd of accusers, I am the door or I am the gate, talking about the fact that he would protect his own better than any religion protects their own. Later in the same chapter, he would offer hope and comfort to those who would listen to him. And he said, I am the good shepherd, meaning that he protects and provides for and defends his people. And that great verse in John 10 that he says, no one can pluck them out of my father's hand. And that is the basis of our eternal security. One of the most powerful and emotional instances of the Bible is in John 11, when Jesus comes alongside two mourning sisters who have just buried their brother. And as a crowd watches, he says, I am the resurrection and the life, as he displayed his power and purpose over death. But maybe the I am of them all 
is found in John chapters 13 to 16 in that farewell address that is recorded for us when Jesus looks at his disciples in John 14 and says, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life and no one comes to the Father but by me. And Calvary, you've heard me say it many times. You can live whatever way you want to live and you will get to God. Choose any way you want to live. You will get to God as judge. But there is only one way to God as Father, and that is through Jesus Christ. And so, here we have it. Now, why did John do this? He was building up to a purpose. He is the kind of the, does something that we never do in our Western world when we write books. We always tell you at the beginning of the book what we're writing about and why we want to write it, but John waits till the very end of his gospel. When you get to John chapter 20, and then he says, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So he says, look, there was a plethora of things I could have written to you about. I was moved to choose these seven miracles, these seven statements wrapped around these conversations, and he says, but these are written for a purpose. Why? So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. That was his purpose. He wanted everyone who ever read it to believe that Jesus was the Christ. But then he gives us the result of that. He says, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Now watch what happens. Because when we come to chapter 13, Jesus has just dismissed Judas to go hatch his plan of evil that's in his heart. And yet we're told that this plan of evil was still, Judas was still being controlled and in submission to the will of an almighty God. So we're less than 24 hours, 12 to 18 hours before Jesus will be betrayed and crucified. Here we are, probably just leaving the upper room maybe somewhere through the Credron Valley, and Jesus stops these confused 11 disciples. It's late in the evening. Here we are with these 11 ordinary men who are listening to an extraordinary Savior. And what's he doing? He prays. And that's, by the way, why I started with that quote from J.C. Ryle. But what is Jesus praying? And let me remind all of us how this prayer breaks down. If you look at verses 1 to 5, Jesus is praying for himself. Then in verses 6 to 19, Jesus prays for and over his disciples. And finally, in verses 20 to 26, he prays for his bride, the church, which, by the way, is you and I. And over the last few verses, in verses 11 down, we've seen how Jesus prays for two things, security and unity. Unity of his disciples around him and around his word and around God as father. Now in verse 13, as I said, things change. Jesus is going to pray for six particular marks of gospel security and gospel unity. Or to put it another way, he's going to pray about the results or the effects of the security that only he provides and the unity that can only be found in him. And amazingly, Jesus prays first for something that I don't think you and I would choose, that my joy may be fulfilled in them. Now, if I asked you all here this morning, what is the most important aspect or trait or good of a good, strong, healthy church? If I had handouts for you all, or I'd say, take your bulletins and write out your list. If you were making a list of what defines a good, healthy church, what would it be? 
I got asked just this week, somebody sent me an email about a family member of theirs that's moving to Prince Edward Island, and they wanted to know if I could recommend a good church to them. In fact, I get asked this quite regularly. But if you get asked that question, hey, where's a good church I could go to, and what are you basing it on? What trait, what list would you factor in to answer the question? And in what order would you put your list? Would you say things like I probably would? Doctrine. Hey, you can go to that church because that's a good doctrinally firm church. Or things like music. Man, they got great music. Or programs. Hey, you got little kids. Hey, they've got wonderful kids programs at that church. Or what about things like, hey, go to this church because it's a loving church. It's a, a holy church or it's a unified church. What makes you say this is a good church? Well, let me ask you this, how many of you would say, and I mean this, how many of you think you should attend a church because you can say they're joyful? They have joy. J.M. Boyce was so impressed while he studied John 17 that it actually changed his understanding of the priorities of God on the local church He explains that this prayer has these three parts, right? A section dealing with Jesus, a section dealing with the disciples, and a final section dealing with those who would follow them in faith. But he talks about how the prayer moves by stages from the Lord to the Lord's church. And in verse 13, the verse to which we come to now, the halfway through the prayer, not surprisingly, he introduces his first characteristic, and it is joy. Now, later on, we're going to discover he talks and prays about holiness and truth and mission and unity and love. But be honest, how many of us would think, well, it makes sense that he would start with joy. And maybe you don't realize it, but Jesus uses the word joy five times in chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. In fact, if you take it with me, go back two chapters to chapter 15 and look at verse 11. When Jesus is speaking to the disciples in the upper room, in chapter 15, verse 11, he says, These things I have spoken to you. Why? That my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So here, he's teaching them in verse 13 of 17, he prays it. Now turn another chapter over to chapter 16 and look again at this passage where he's prepping them for him leaving. In verse 19, Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but watch this now, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Now notice his illustration. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish. Why? For joy that a human being has been born into the world. I have three kids and six grandchildren. And the one thing that is consistent on any woman I've ever met, one, they always have a story about delivery. Every woman I've ever met. But two, that story pales in comparison to the joy they have of being a mom and having a child. He goes on to say, 
so also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again. And your hearts will rejoice. And watch this. And no one will take your joy from you. I want you to realize joy is not an emotion. Joy is a disposition. Joy is a state of being. And yet, let's be honest, we all struggle, don't we? That's why I asked. In fact, I'm 51 years old. I've been around church, evangelical church, since I was five. I've been a pastor now over half my life. I don't think I've ever had a conversation, ever, where someone said, go to that church. It's a joyful church. In fact, tragically, I've had a lot more conversations about don't go to that church because there's no joy there. But what do you think this phrase means? Because if I asked you by a show of hands, how many of you know have heard this verse? The joy of the Lord is my strength. Put your hand up. All right, all you church people are now showing it, right? But now if I asked you to give me the reference for it, somebody yell out the reference. <laughs> Who said that? All right, I would. I would have the doctor, the resident doctor would yell that out, right? Probably has a mind like a human computer. He's AI over there, all right? And he's right. But did you notice how few of you yelled it out? In fact, many of you only know the verse to be, the joy of the Lord is our strength or your strength. It's actually a part of a much larger verse and passage. It's Nehemiah chapter 8, verse 10. Here's the verse. Then Nehemiah said to them, the nation of Israel, go your way. Eat the fat, drink sweet wine, and send portions to anyone who has, who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord, and do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And this leads me to my first point, which is this. How are you and I going to have the joy of the Lord? How are we going to be a joyful church? Number one, we can only have Christ's joy as we trust his word. You will only be joyful as you trust his word. I guess the question we've got to ask ourselves is this then, right? What do the words of God mean to us? And how does the word of God change us and affect us mentally? emotionally, intellectually, and even relationally. Paul Tripp, one of my favorite biblical counselors, writes this, if your theology doesn't produce sturdy, lasting, vibrant, and unshakable joy, then there's something wrong with your theology or how you live it out. Boom. There's something wrong. If you don't have a theology that produces a lasting, vibrant, unshakable joy, then something's either wrong with your theology or something's wrong with how you're living out your proclaimed theology. And that's why I asked you about the verse from Nehemiah. Because here's the problem we have in the West. We love to cherry pick the Bible. I've also said when you chicken McNugget the Bible, you just grab random verses. Too many professing Christians treat the Bible like it's a magic eight ball. You just shake it and you're going to get a verse. I've heard too many people that take a Bible and go, that's my verse for today. That is not the way to read your Bible. God is so much more than a magic eight ball or a genie. You don't cherry pick your Bible. Do you realize the context of Nehemiah 8 
In Nehemiah chapter 8, which we are studying as a group of men in our early morning Bible study, is a nation that had abandoned God, had been taken into slavery, and the walls of Jerusalem are broken down. The temple is in tatters. No one has heard the law of the Lord read in decades. And finally, Nehemiah and a priest named Ezra gather the nation, and for six hours, three hours, they read the Bible, and for three hours, they construct a pulpit, and Ezra gets on top of it and explains the word of the Lord for three hours. It was a six-hour service, men, women, and children. For those of you that are checking your watch to see how fast I'm moving. It is in the context of this people hearing that in spite of their sin and their idolatry and in spite of the fact that God in love has had to discipline them, that he would never forsake them, he would never leave them. When they had the word of God read to them and someone explained it to them, they were able to then say and hear these words of Nehemiah, don't grieve, the joy of the Lord is our strength. You'll notice it's a way of the mind. Do you see it? So you read the Bible, and you pray the Bible, and you memorize the Bible, and you think about the Bible, and you study the Bible. Do you remember what Haley read? Philippians 4 verse 8, finally brothers and sisters, whatever is pure, whatever is true, whatever is honest, whatever is lovely, whatever is virtuous, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, what? Think. Say it with me. Think on those things. You see, you'll notice joy is a battle for your mind, not your heart. We always think that the emotions are all right here, but this controls this. What's the problem in the West, especially in the Western church, is we've made this the priority and we put this to bed. And we've stopped thinking. We've stopped thinking. Richard Phillips challenges us and says, according to the Bible, it is essential that God's people live in this world with great joy. Why do you think Paul said again, rejoice in the Lord always? Again, I will say, rejoice. The prophets looked with wonder in the Old Testament at the coming of Christ. The prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 35, the wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. So Calvary is a family. It is not only our Christian privilege to live in joy, but it is also our duty to respond to the grace of Christ, to respond with hearts that rejoice and in thanks to God. One of my favorite writers is Jerry Bridges. He writes, to be joyless is to dishonor God and to deny his love and his control over our lives. He would actually be this bold. He says it's practical atheism. To be joyful is to experience the power of the Holy Spirit within us and to say to a watching world, our God reigns. So you know what? I can pray for my politicians, but I don't need them. I can pray that God will heal our land, but I am not afraid by the climate change or by the sexual revolution or by cultural tensions because our God reigns. This gives us joy. 
It's funny, I don't think I have to prove why this is so important, do I? I mean, take a minute right now and think about your life and the ups and the downs, the struggles. Right now, think about the sins that you're fighting with, the things that you're fighting against. What are you wrestling with? What are the attitudes that you struggle with about things like money or life? or health, politics, relationships, marriage, family, work. What is dominating your thinking? And because it dominates your thinking, dominates your emotions. Let me ask you this. What dominates your thoughts as you walk through life? Are you constantly comparing your situation to others? In other words, are you constantly thinking, well, I'm not as bad as them, but man, they're better than me. Are you constantly thinking about how you measure up against someone else that you agree with or you disagree with? Are you always keeping score? Are you always posturing your life and relationships based on, I've done this, 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 and this, and you haven't done this, 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 and this. Ipso facto, you get a failing grade and you must be easier on me because I'm trying. Does that not sound familiar? Do we not do this? Do you project your hardships, your job, your situation, and then make that the test as you relate to others in life? So if you've been through something, you feel like everybody should give you a pass, but then you expect everybody else to suck it up and walk tall because they don't have it as tough as you. How often do you think, though, about Jesus? or the gospel, or the Bible, prayer, and what the actual truth is about your life. Friends, don't you find it interesting that in Psalm 119, the longest chapter of the Bible, it's 176 verses of an author telling us the joy and the peace that is found when you know, study, and trust the precepts, the laws, the admonitions, the promises, and the, and the, uh, the, 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 the law of the Lord. That's why I had Haley read Psalm uh, Philippians 4. It's a challenge for our minds that affects our heart. In fact... You fight and win the battle for your mind, then your heart will rejoice. And how do I know this? Be consider John himself. Because this son of thunder, this guy who wanted to call fire down on somebody that didn't agree with him, this guy who was always feeling self-righteous and always feeling like he needed to measure up and always looking to secure his position around Jesus, in his first letter... In 1 John chapter 3, he writes these words. Listen to the change of his heart. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him, God. For whenever our heart condemns us, watch, God is greater than our heart. You notice, John is the one that says, listen, your emotions don't own you. God does. And notice what he says. Because God knows everything. Why? Beloved, beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. If your heart doesn't condemn us, you don't get a chance to be proud. It's because you know Jesus loves you. But notice, in whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. 
And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, part one, part two, and love one another, just as he commanded us. But here's the problem. When you and I read this, we go, okay, I believe in God, I believe in Jesus, and I will love others as long as they love me back. That's not what the verse says. Hang on to that thought. You see, I know this to be true because I know just how much I need it. Because I struggle with joy. I struggle with the ups and downs of my own heart and my mind. But what a joy to know that Jesus prayed this prayer over me and that Jesus is praying this prayer for me. And he's praying it for you. And by the way, Jesus doesn't need to pray. You know why he does it? So you and I can see him do it. Think about back in John 11 when he prayed uh, before Lazarus' tomb. Do you remember what he says? Lord, I don't pray to you because I need to pray to you. I'm praying so that these people will see and hear me pray. I'm praying it on their behalf. In John 17, Jesus is not praying this because he needs to pray. He's praying this for the benefit of those 11 He's praying it so we can see it and we can draw hope from it and we can follow the example of it and be assured by it. In other words, have joy. Now, let me ask you, what do you think church is? Or put, rather put, what should a church be known for? If we're saying our church should be known for a joy in Christ, our confidence in God's word, remember that David said, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember what? The name of the Lord our God. Amen? right? Then let me ask, then why are we so fickle? A little over a month ago, Debbie and I got the word, and I've I've dealt with this with my own parents a number of years ago. My my mom and my dad both had open-heart surgery 10 months apart. And I remember the situation of my dad on that table at the health science having a quadruple bypass. And my mom was a mess, scared and wondering if her husband would come out of that surgery. And then a few weeks ago, Debbie and I got the call that her mom was up visiting family and she had had a fall and she fractured her hip. And my mother is, my mother-in-law is well into her 80s and I've been a pastor long enough to know that ladies especially who are older, a broken hip can be a death sentence. And it really rippled through our family. And it was so strange to me because on a Sunday morning a few weeks ago, I was getting ready to preach, but I had this overwhelming sense of calm. My mother-in-law has a legacy of faith in Jesus Christ. She loves Jesus. My mother-in-law and father-in-law have raised four beautiful daughters, and they love their family, and I knew she would be well cared for. And I had complete peace, and I went to Debbie, and I said, Debbie, live or die, God is good, and if God calls her home, she will open her eyes in the presence of Almighty God. And it was, I was so strong. I felt so assured. And then I got in the car to come to church that Sunday morning to preach, having prayed this and having given Debbie such wise, wise husbandly advice. <laughs> Only to stop at Tim Hortons to get a large T double-double and five cars in front of me with the lady in front of me who decided to order everything on the menu. And I thought my life was going to end. 
I'm looking at the clock. I'm realizing that the things are happening not fast enough. And I'm wondering, Lord, why have you sent me into the hell that is a lineup at Tim Hortons? Have you not experienced that? Yeah. The ups and downs, how fickle we are. You see, very often in my life, it's not boulders I trip over. It's the pebble in my shoe that just eats at me and eats at me and eats at me. And I give away my joy for the temporal comforts of life. And we do this with each other. It's funny, isn't it? We get mad if others question us or doubt us. Why do we get afraid when money is short or the job is, disappears? Why do we doubt God when the kids struggle or we lose a loved one? Do we not all face the temptation to question God? It's funny, isn't it? As a pastor, I have heard Psalm 73 read at just about every single funeral I've ever been. And it's like we're reading it for the dead. Why not read it for the living? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Maybe that is something you need to hear today. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because thou art with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me and you anoint my head with oil and surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. When was the last time you read Psalm 23 and said, I'm going to read this and think about it today and not just write it down somewhere and say, I'll tell the kids to read this at my funeral. At your funeral, if you're a Christian, you're living it. But right here is where we struggle with it. So number two, to have Christ's joy, we experience it in community. So to have God's joy, you've got to experience and trust his word. But if you're going to have God's joy, you've got to experience it in community. J.M. Boyce asked this question. He was so rocked by studying this. He said, is the church today joyful? Are Christians He writes, I do not doubt for a moment that we are all far more joyful than we would be if we were not Christians, nor do I doubt that there are places with joy where joy is particularly evident. It is often very evident in new believers, for example. Can I not get a witness on that? I know she's sitting here with Celeste. She's not a new believer now, but I remember when Celeste got saved. I remember, now she's Spanish, she's not Mexican, but she was like a Mexican jumping bean. She bounced off the walls. There was no one she couldn't wait to tell about her Savior and what God had done to her. And I still admire her love for people. But do you remember what it was like when you were first saved? Everything was new. You couldn't believe that God had forgiven you. Can you realize the euphoria of sins forgiven and the joy of a Savior and Lord and how now, years later, months later, decades later, it's bogged down in the minutia of junk? It's often very evident, he says, but across the board in most churches, if one were to observe them impartially week after week, I wonder if the joy that obviously characterized Jesus and the early church would be visible. He says, no doubt we think of joy as something that should characterize the church ideally and will doubtlessly characterize it in the day when we are gathered together 
and we sing God's grace together. But here, here on earth, here it is often the case that our sour looks, our griping, our long faces, and other manifestations of a fundamental inner misery. The story has often been told, and I'm sure that you've heard it, of a church in Scotland in which the pastor was preaching but was obviously so boring, according to one parishioner, that he took out a piece of paper and started to doodle. He started to draw pictures of the pastor and the people in the church, many of which who were asleep. He threw it away, and the story goes that the janitor picked it up, and he had actually written on this doodle, and here is what he wrote, to dwell above with saints I love, oh, that will be glory. But to dwell below with saints I know, now that's a different story. <laughs> you see, that's the difference between what we profess and what we really are. We are commanded to be joyful. Jesus prayed that his joy would be fulfilled in us. But why are we as Christians depressed? And I'm not saying as Christians we don't face bouts of depression. I'm saying as Christians, when we live life depressed, when circumstances don't just get us down, they own us. Instead of the victory we should experience, all we seem to know is defeat and discouragement. Now, what do you and I really think living in community with joy means? Our Bible is filled with instructions about this. But the problem is too many of us in the church have bought into the culture's construct of friendship and community. We think friendship and community and relationships are more like partnerships. I agree to something, you agree to something. It's almost like common interest or tit for tat. Well, you invited me over, now I'm obligated to invite you over. You've been nice, you've served me for a couple of years, now I must serve you for a couple of years. And if it's not all some zero, then something's wrong. You see it as a social standing of commonalities. But God sent Jesus into the world to do something counter to all that. Proverbs says that to have friends, are you ready for this? You must show yourself friendly. It does not say to have friends, you must make a TikTok video and cry and say, I have no friends. It doesn't say to have friends, you must mourn and demand everybody friend you. No, the gospel so transforms us that we can't wait to befriend others. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're like, Steve, well, when you do this, then I'll do it, then you don't get it. This is not something we wait for. This is something we leap at the opportunity. I think a young intern told us about that last week. We live from a deep assurance that we're fully loved by God. Friends, listen to me. God never intended us to look to others for the kind of love that only He can give. To have Jesus' joy fulfilled in us is to live life loved by God. So you can't wait to share it with others. Thus, in our community is and can be about looking out for the interests of others. It can be about stirring each other on to love and good deeds. Even in that passage, right? Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Why? For he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another in the joy of the Lord. That's what encouragement means. 
We are going to hurt each other. We are going to fail each other. A wise man once said to me, Steve, how do porcupines mate? Very carefully. The Christian life is one of what one guy said is the porcupine dance. Being Christians, being sinners, being in a church is never going to be easy because we're in it. But if I demand perfection from all of you while demanding you all be patient with my imperfection, that is the opposite of church. And if we're so busy keeping lists and demanding that people see it our way, is it any wonder that our churches are joyless? You see the secret? If we have God's Word and we're unified around His Word then we'll be unified together in community. My friends, Jesus said, my joy. He said, my joy. He was not praying for a joy from below, but from its origin was in heaven. A joy is the occupation and the character and the realization of heaven. It is not dependent on circumstances, but on the love of a sovereign God. So you know what someone would say to me? Hey, where should I go to church? I would say this, go to a small, unglamorous church near where you live, Before the service, pray a simple prayer. God, teach me. God, use me. God, help me to befriend someone. And repeat that for six months and watch what happens. You see, joy is a disposition because God seems more committed to our character than he is to our comfort or you feeling like you're right. Or me. One man says, eternally I will thank him In the moment, I will trust Him. I am foreknown by God. I am reborn by God. I am guarded by God. So I am filled with the joy of God. Preach the truth to your emotions and the truth will begin to change your emotions by the power of the Holy Spirit. And friends, listen. The 11 disciples didn't stop believing in Jesus and didn't forsake the church because of the actions of Judas. They didn't. If the actions of others wreck your faith and your commitment to joy and God and His church, then you ask yourself, what was my faith in, Jesus or people? And it's true, we are good at sinning. But Jesus is better at saving. And you'll have Christ's joy as you rest in who God is, and then I'm done. Alex Moitier says that very well. He says, in a collapsing world, The people whose joy is in the Lord are secure. In 2023, with all of the argumentation about the world and climate and politics and taxation and carbon taxes and all of the frustration that social media has now unleashed upon us to yell out and scream out even the most trivial of opinions, when the world is more insecure than ever, and bombs still rain down on the Ukraine, and floods and forest fires ravage parts of our country, and famine and sex trafficking are abundant, and where men and women are being taken advantage of, and there's a scourge of the earth often. Where are the Christians that have the joy of the Lord? Not a fake funniness like a Walt Disney, it's a small world after all. No, where we can say, Our God reigns. One of the most powerful images of the peace of God is not the tranquil rolling greens of Prince Edward Island. No, it's that 
lighthouse out on the shore of Newfoundland in the raging sea when the waves are beating upon it and yet you know you're safe in the cleft of the rock. This must be understood in the light of the other parallels of our, of our passage. All troubles are painful. They are going to go through grief. Jesus said it back in chapter 16. But if James is right that temptations and, and trials perfect us and bring forth joy, if Peter is right that temptation and, and persecution turns us into gold, if Paul is right that in 1 Corinthians we trust the future resurrection, living free from anxiety then is all about trust. Do you and I believe God is able? Do you believe that God is able? All right? I believe most of you. Here's what I think is the problem. We don't think God is willing. Many of us think God is able. We've sung it, right? He's able, he's able, I know he's able. Everybody that I talk to as Christians will tell me God's able. But many of you don't believe God is willing to protect you. He loves you and He cares for you. Your answer to your anxieties is found in the cross, the place where God proved once and for all that He loves you unconditionally and can overcome even death so He can definitely handle your phobias. And this is why we cling to this. This example of His intercession encouraged them and should encourage us. Remember what He said back in chapter 16? Ask and you will receive Brothers and sisters and friends, Christians are not to find joy in the circumstances of the world. The world will often offer you joy and inflict pain with the same hand. Richard Phillips reminds us, we gain joy in knowing that Christ, our high priest, has died for our sins and is even now interceding for our salvation in heaven. And so, what are we supposed to do with all this? Alexander McLaren says, the only cheerful Christianity is a Christianity that draws its gladness from deep personal experience of communion with Jesus Christ. If we abide in Christ, his joy will abide in us and our joy will be full. So if you're here this morning and you'll be like, Steve, listen, I have no idea what you're talking about because I don't know Jesus that way. I live in fear and doubt, and anger, and bitterness. You've heard me say this quote, there's a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of every person which cannot be filled by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. So many of us try to fill that God-shaped gap with things that end up causing us to feel more hurt, and to feel more lonely, and to feel more weak. But you need to realize God welcomes those who confess. God desires our restoration. And God has put out and worked our redemption. It's the greatest invitation to joy that you can have. It transcends emotions or happiness or gladness. And it offers you and I a peace and hope and calm and security and joy. And what the angel said to the shepherd is still true today. Shall be joy to all people. So come, come to the Savior. We all start on the outside, right? That song from the sidewalk prophets, the outside looking in, and this is where grace begins. We are hungry and we are thirsty with nothing left to give. Oh, the shape that we were in, just when all hope seemed lost, love opened the door for us and he said, come to the table. Come join the sinners who have been redeemed. Take your place beside the Savior. Sit down and be set free. 
the reason those words are on the door out there from Ray Ortland, and the reason the chorus says this to the thief and to the doubter, to the hero and to the coward, to the prisoner and the soldier, to the young and to the older, to all who hunger and all who thirst, all the last and all the first, to the pauper and the princes and all who fail. You've been forgiven. All who dream and all who suffer, all who loved and lost another, all the chained and all the free, all who follow and all who lead, anyone who's been let down and all the lost you have been found, all who have been labeled right or wrong, come to the Savior and find joy. And Christians, this generation of Christians, according to Mac Brunson, for the most part, seems to fear the loss of popularity more than they fear the displeasure of God. We need to realize we have joy because it's God to us. It's not our efforts to win the Father's love. Rather, it is freely and graciously given. So we can rejoice to know that God's word is true and we can trust it. We can rejoice that we can pray and know that God prays for us. And we can rejoice knowing that God loves us and intercedes for us and is coming for us. And we can rejoice that in our imperfections we can still show a watching world in each other the love and patience and mercy of God. And to have God's joy fulfilled in us, we can pray this week that joy would be fulfilled in us. We can do life with other Christians and have His joy fulfilled in us. We can witness and display that joy joy. And we can say with the angels, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Where's your joy? Where's your joy? Let's pray. Oh, Father God, I pray that my passion and my emotion have been fueled by you. Lord, it's an overcast day. We've had an incredible month, really, in July. Lord, we're going to take some time to meet with each other and fellowship, and the members of the church will have some food together, and we'll hear about the finances. But Lord, will we be a joyful church? Will I be a joyful person? Lord, if any man or woman here and they don't know you, oh God, would they accept your invitation to come and know the great joy of Jesus Christ? Lord, if there are men and women here, couples, families, young and old, who are fighting for joy, who have given up their joy. Satan, Steve and I were talking about, Satan doesn't rob us of our joy. We surrender it when we take our mind off of you and our heart then denies us and overrules us. Lord, help us to captive, take captive thoughts that would take our joy. Lord, be with us. May we sing now with hearts that are genuine. May we look at the words of what we're singing. May we know the freedom of not keeping lists or keeping score. May we know the joy of forgiveness. May we know the joy of offering it to others. May we know the joy that comes from saying, I want to step forward and live out the joy of God in this room and out in this city. And may you get all the honor and glory in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen.